Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They're everywhere. We hear them rattle up and down the streets of our towns and cities. 480,000 of them. They have become almost invisible to us as they shuttle 26 million impressionable minds to our public schools every day. America's future is being shifted and remolded through our public school system. Tomorrow's voters and leaders are being guided and instructed in today's classrooms. But whose doctrine is being taught? The bus represents a story that has everything to do with where our nation came from and where it is going. This is a story of our children. This is the story of the big yellow bus. This is the story of indoctrination. Six years ago, we came together to pass the No Child Left Behind Act. And today, no one can deny its results. Stupid in America. That's a nasty title. 14 countries rank higher on reading ability than the U.S. And the urgent task of fixing America's failing schools. A third of our kids are dropping out. The American education system badly needs improvement. Just last week, schools got $10 billion in emergency government funding. But now the shocking video of a school beating caught on tape. There have been six suicides in our school district. Tampa police are investigating a report of a rape at Jefferson High School. Clearly one of the defining issues of our day, education has become a hot topic. People from every political persuasion are engaging in public debate, blaming the growing crises in everything from teachers' unions to uninvolved parents or insufficient funding. Can the system be fixed or do we abandon it? Even the church seems divided over how to respond to the growing academic and moral threats in public schools. When you send that child off to school today... You're sending them into a pagan society. When you criticize the Word of God, criticize the Lord Jesus Christ, just degrade Christian faith altogether and teach those practices that the Bible states very clearly are ungodly, unacceptable, and condemned by God, that's what you're sending your child into. I don't think there's anything else that 90% of Christians do together. Same choice. Fight to the death over which Bible you're going to use, okay? Uh, Which denomination you're going to be a part of? Duke it out there too. But 90% make the exact same educational choice. And nobody can point to book, chapter, and verse to justify it. I move the passage of resolution number two on the secularization of our culture. 
Here we're watching a debate on the floor of the largest evangelical denomination in America. One side wants an exodus from the government schools, giving the highest priority to the purity and discipleship of their own children. Two years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention Council on Family Life reported that within a very short time of reaching the age of 18, in other words, finishing high school, leaving home, 88% leave the church not to return. I agree that we have a responsibility to make sure they are being taught the things of God. But that responsibility lies upon the moms and the dads of our home, and we cannot give the raising the character of our children to the public schools. That's our responsibility. The other side wants just the opposite, an even greater involvement in the public schools, giving the priority to witnessing to the children of unbelievers. If we pull our children and godly teachers away from this world, then the darkness will completely overtake the schools and the hearts of our children will spoil as the salt is removed. Later that day, two influential Southern Baptist leaders took the stage. First, Al Mohler, head of one of the largest seminaries in the world, who's arguably the leading Baptist theologian in America. Teach your children. Teach believers. Teach followers of the Lord Jesus Christ the faith. They're not going to get it by osmosis. In his book, Culture Shift, he wrote, the time has come for Christians to develop an exit strategy from the public schools. I want to see... This is Franklin Graham, son of the famous Billy Graham. A child at least one child in every class in every public school in America who is trained as a witness for Jesus Christ. Let's don't surrender public schools. Let's take them back. This is the debate we need to settle. With sincere Christians on both sides asking, should we protect our children by withdrawing them from the public schools? Or should we leave them in the system to try to influence the schools for the better? My name is Colin Gunn, and as a Christian homeschool dad born and raised in Scotland, there's plenty that I need to learn about the American school system to better understand this hotly contested issue. So my wife Emily and I thought we'd take the family on a little field trip from her native Texas all across the great USA. It's time to load up the guns and hit the road. We found the perfect bus on Craigslist. There's a surprising market for old school buses, primarily hippies, tailgaters, deer hunters, and of course, the occasional filmmaker. You've come by to to do some recording for your up-and-coming documentary, Indoctrination, and this is really the belly of the beast. When it comes down to it, you went after the public schools. Indeed. As a filmmaker, I have to go to other people to find out the truths, and we've been traveling around America in a big yellow school bus, which has been our, our theme for the movie. So you live in so, this thing? Yeah, well, we tried not can, to. <laughs> we had to for it. three weeks, and we okay. traveled around America. But kids had a great time, and one of the things we like is there's an antithesis. We're ironically using the school bus, but showing the freedom and the liberty that you have as a homeschool family. We're just heading through Dallas. This will be fun for the whole family. Quite a trip in the bus at 60 miles an hour. 
This is me at the age of five. Like most Scottish kids, I trotted off to school carrying my satchel to what would probably be the most life-changing event of my childhood. I had a fairly average experience at school. My unimpressive grades testify partly to a lack of personal motivation, but also I believe the school system's inability to inspire. Looking back at my public schooling brings back many memories, both good and bad. When I remember some of the bad things from those years, the bullying, the dreary classrooms, and even the bad influences of some of my peers, I start to think of the alternatives to public education that weren't readily available to my parents' generation. When Emily and I started having our own kids, we had to decide what we wanted to do for them. We wanted the very best for them. We wanted to raise them in the faith and protect them from some of the things we had been exposed to. So we decided to educate them at home. Now I know that parents who send their children to public schools love their children too and want the very best for them as well. But what is it that parents should expect by putting them on the bus today? Many of the people who are part of this project, like my wife Emily and Joaquin, my co-director, share very similar negative schooling experiences, even though we all have different backgrounds. But a recent graduate of the public schools might give us a fresh insider perspective. I attended public schools from kindergarten through 12th grade. I was in a very good school district. My high school was consistently ranked among the top 200 in the country. Emily spoke to a young lady from a Christian home who went to one of those great schools we've all heard about. My parents had always been involved in my education, even if it was, you know, just buying newspapers for me to read or buying books. And my parents said, we don't want you in the classroom for the lessons on homosexuality and AIDS. So I was one of two students out of 60 who got pulled out for that. But it didn't matter because, of course, we were all in the same class for the rest of the day. And I learned everything that had been in there at recess. And by the end of fifth grade, um, most of my friends had had boyfriends. Even though our school was supposed to teach abstinence, in practice, that did not happen. Um, The closest we got was some people are abstinent before marriage. Now let's talk about what everyone else does. By the time they get partway through high school, the stats show almost half will have had sex, many with multiple partners, and many without a condom. Chancellor Dennis Walcott says the new curriculum will stress abstinence, but the reality is many don't abstain. There's four people pregnant this year, and then the next next week they'll be like, there's nine people pregnant this year, and then there was ten. School officials have their work cut out for them. They're now considering a plan to provide birth control services at the school in the fall. But their biggest challenge? How to change the mindset of some of the girls who come here. Sex in schools has become one of the biggest concerns for parents. The Provincetown School Department has approved a plan to distribute condoms in both the high school and the elementary school. Parents will not be told if their child requests a condom, and they will not be allowed to prohibit their children from receiving one. They could say it, but we wouldn't honor it. A parent can't call and say, hey, I don't want my six-year-old to get a condom, and two... Six. Six Six-year-old. This is so crazy, it's hard to believe. And if you think this can't happen in your school, look at one of the creative ways in which Planned Parenthood is reaching out to children. Once upon a time, the infamous child catcher of Bulgaria used similar tactics to lure little children away from their parents. Here we are, children. Come and get your lollipops. Lollipops. Come along, baby, little ones. 
Sex in the schools has become so common, it's not just a problem amongst the children. According to the Department of Education's own nationwide investigation, nearly 10% of public school students have been targeted with unwanted sexual attention by school staff. Most people have a hard time believing this could happen in their child's school. Until it does. That's everybody, by the way. Doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter who they are, their schools are different. That's what a lot of folks used to say, for example, in Port Natchez, Texas. And they pride themselves on their schools there in Port Natchez, Texas. You know, Port Arthur, Texas is real close to Port Natchez. Port Arthur, that's where those people live. You know, large numbers of blacks and Hispanics, poor people, that's where their schools are. Port Natchez is different. Port Natchez is pearly white. It's rather wealthy compared to Port Arthur. Their schools are different. It's true which is why one of their principals of a Port Natchez elementary school was caught in a sting in the middle of a park soliciting boys for sex. He also happened to be a deacon at a local Port Natchez Baptist church. So I'm sure the parents there went around saying, our schools are different. Our principal is not only a Christian, he's a deacon. Good for them. I was shocked when I was 11, and I heard of someone in our middle school um, who I was talking with who had had an abortion. And I had only recently learned what an abortion was. Along with exposure to premarital sex, drugs are maybe the next biggest concern. According to a recent report, nearly half of all American high school students smoke, drink alcohol, or use illicit drugs. Drugs and alcohol became a problem in middle school, which I think is long before many parents even think to have a conversation with their children about when the legal drinking age is. If you doubt there are drugs in most American schools, just visit your local police station. Rough cluster of, of some marijuana here. Uh, prescription drugs, uh, pills are a favorite. They take them out of the parents' medicine cabinets. That's one stash from one high school seized in one day. A show of hands if you've ever known anyone to be high in school. Everybody. But then again, it's so hard to avoid it because it's so common now. And it's not just the illegal drugs that are concerning a lot of parents today. It's the drugs that the schools themselves are pushing on the kids, especially boys. After all, the ideal male in an American classroom is the one who sits still and behaves without showing any signs of his own masculinity. Author and attorney Bruce Short exposes some of these issues in his book, The Harsh Truth About Public Schools. Nobody really knows what the long-term effects of many of these medications are on young developing bodies and minds. What you have is probably the largest uncontrolled drug experiment in the history of the world. And I'm afraid that it's doing enormous damage, particularly to boys in the schools. And then there's the issue of school violence. I saw a gun on the bus for the first time when I was 12. I was in seventh grade. We were coming home from school, and a boy on my bus had a handgun, mm -hmm. which scared me to death. Mm -hmm. And this is in a public school that's ranked in the top 200 in the country. And on paper, I looked like a great product of the public schools. I was a national AP scholar. I did the International Baccalaureate program. I graduated with very high GPA, but inside I was dying, and I was absolutely spiritually broken by the time I graduated from 12th grade. So even in the good schools, the same problems of promiscuity, drugs, and violence all exist. A recent Gallup poll showed that 77% of parents give their child's school an A or a B performance rating while 79% of Americans in general 
give the nation's public schools a C. In other words, everybody knows that the schools are terrible, but parents insist on believing that their child's school is doing better than most other schools. It's amazing to me that parents are willing to admit that there are these problems and yet believe that their children will somehow escape. They won't. If they end up being Christian after graduating from high school, that will be a real accomplishment in and of itself. At my high school, there was so much pressure to give up your Christian values if you happen to be Christian. I certainly never admitted I was a Christian in high school. And I told one person that I wasn't. And to my shame, I still have a hard time admitting that today. But I will admit that if it helps parents make the decision about where to send their children or how to educate their children. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It also tells us that pure and undefiled religion involves keeping yourself unspotted from the world. All of us who have been to public schools know that within the confines of the playground, this is an impossibility. According to a study by the Barna Group, 61% of today's young adults who have been churched are now spiritually disengaged, i.e. not actively attending church, reading the Bible, or praying. The sad truth is that a vast majority of children from Christian homes will leave the faith. We don't lose them. We give them away. I met up with my friend, Pastor R.C. Sproul Jr. in San Antonio. He's a famous critic of the public school system. We're here in front of the Alamo. The Alamo is a a symbol of American freedom, Texas freedom, of course. I'm a freedom-loving kind of guy. But, you know, what I'm thinking is if we surrender our children, then to the public schools, what does all the rest of it matter? Freedom in the end isn't about having guns, having money, having houses. Freedom is about raising our children to serve the Lord Jesus. All of reality exists so that God's name would be known. And the government school says you can't name his name. They are forbidden by law to publicly and clearly state that Jesus Christ is Lord. You get the salt and light argument from folks who who have their children in government schools. It's not working. If, if, If we send out evangelists and they become unbelievers, we're not following a biblical strategy. But to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the government schools will get you thrown out, whether you're a teacher, an administrator, or a child. How did this happen? There must be some Christian influence in the schools. I decided to drive down to Austin for the Texas Teacher of the Year Awards and ask Christian teachers how their faith affects their testimony in the schools. This is the Texas Teacher of the Year event, so we're going to come here to do some interviews with some teachers, hopefully. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. So what's the, what's the conflict in public schools about being you know, a Christian and being able to talk about the Christian faith, uh, are you able to do that in your classroom? or is it I difficult? think to demonstrate it is even more important or as important as talking. I think the best way to teach Christianity in school is through example. Teaching students that uh, there's a positive way to live life and uh, an ethical way to live life. These interviews were helpful. They represent what many teachers are trying to do in the schools. They know they can't be explicit about their faith, so they seek to lead by example. This is good, but isn't godly living only half of our responsibility? Didn't Jesus command us to boldly confess his name before men, regardless of the consequences? 
The declining trend in the public schools seems to demonstrate that godly example by Christian teachers has maybe slowed the decay, but their subtle expressions of faith are certainly not reversing the downward trend. I needed to talk to someone who could potentially have more influence as a Christian in the public schools. We had heard of an elementary school principal in Pennsylvania. I wanted to know how he was able to be salt and light in the public school he had chosen to serve in. When I gave my life to the Lord, I was in technical sales, a very, very cutthroat industry. And I, I got to the point where I really said, is this, is this what God wants me to do? So when a Christian said to me, you, you have what I see as this gift with, with working with children, uh, have you ever thought about that? It was something that hit me like a brick. And, and I thought, wow. Yeah, so now I'm an elementary principal. Chief cook and bottle washer. It's a small school. We're always in the top 10%. We're a national blue ribbon school through the Department of Education. Uh, we have people that come to us and say, yeah, we're, we're coming here because you're the top school in the state and this is where we want our kids to go. I asked them, how exactly are you being salt and light as a Christian and as a principal of a government school? I do have a, a conflict at times between God's law and man's law. I'm in front of the dike and there are pinholes and cracks starting in the dike. And what I'm doing with the Anti-Defamation League, I put my finger in that little hole and I stop it. And what I'm doing with after school, uh, with the program for Good News Club, putting my finger in that hole and stopping it. And now I'm standing here holding back the water up here, but yet I'm realizing I look down and the whole foundation of the dike is crumbling out from under me because the foundation's not built upon God, not built upon His Word, not built upon His truths. It's built upon man, man's desires, man's wants. So I'm on shaky ground, and I, I have a hard time with that. Yes, in the morning we do pledge the flag and have a moment of silence. And in that moment of silence, I pray. I make sure that I'm out where other people can see me and I am bowing my head and I am praying. Really, that's the only area anymore that God is in the schools. Even as a principal, it can still be a struggle to be salt and light in the schools. It seems he's not alone in this struggle. I come from a line of public school educators. My mom is a public school teacher, as well as both of my grandmothers and both of my great-grandmothers. Sarah's the kind of teacher Christian parents would want their child to have. She's a believer, she's kind, and she loves her students. She's doing what a lot of Christians are doing, trying to be salt and light to her young students. But she was honest about the difficulties. The public school system culture as a whole is overwhelmingly anti-Christian. Um, the teachers, I've heard teachers say things to students that are directly anti-Christian. There was an incident where students were um, calling each other gay on the playground. And a teacher addressed, handled that situation by telling the students that, well, that's okay and you don't know you might be gay. Um, you don't know yet. Most people don't find out until they're older. And she was telling this to eight-year-olds. And so as a Christian, this was very difficult for me to listen to and to hear that. Do parents know about these kinds of incidents in their children's school? 
parents, they want to think that their teachers are doing good, but they don't know what really goes on inside of the classroom. And while the public school system teaches morals, we're told that that's the most important thing that we teach, that that is the plate that all of the subjects, everything else goes on. But what the public school system has done is taken Christ out from the morals. And so they've taken the foundation that the morals are based on away. I asked Sarah about her struggle to be faithful to Christ in the public schools. I can't tell the students about God. I can't give him glory for anything. Just the other night we had um, open house. We had parent night. And I have never felt so ashamed as a Christian as I did standing in front of those parents and presenting to them our plan, our school year. And I felt like I was making them feel good about their decision to place their child in the public school. I was reassuring them that they're in a a good place when I don't believe that. When someone is teaching them and standing in front of them in a position of authority and telling them that the earth is however many million years old or telling them things that go directly against what the Bible teaches and their parents are sending them to this place, they, they are learning, okay, my parents must not really believe this. Okay, the Bible must not really be the Word of God because my teacher who I like and who is, seems to be a good person is saying otherwise. Surely there must be something she can do to help her students. If I talk about my faith, the way I want to, I know that I'll lose my job. How long would your career last if you were to start um, teaching scripture from the front of the classroom? (laughs) I'd probably be out of here that day. Would she really get in that much trouble? A teacher is in trouble for bringing a religion into his classroom, but should he lose his job? The school board is hearing arguments at this hour. We have a live report. Can we profess Christianity and at the door of a public school leave his name behind in everything that we do, knowing that we're teaching, knowing that we're imparting knowledge when the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? That was a big question, and I wrestled with it, and I came under so much conviction. felt like I was grieving the Holy Spirit knowing that there were so many instances where I did fail. It just came to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. Mr. Ziegler experienced firsthand what it felt like to be called into the principal's office for misbehaving. Religious expression clashes with academic policy in Papillion. A high school math teacher accused of discussing his religious beliefs in the classroom could see his career at Papillion end tonight. KATV News Watch Evans' Todd Andrews is standing by live at the school board meeting that will decide the teacher's fate. Todd brings us tonight's big story. Teacher Robert Ziegler is facing dismissal for discussing Christianity in his math class. There's some liberty um, when it comes to talking about religion in the classroom. If, if teachers are asked questions, they answer those questions. Apparently, Ziegler is not without his supporters. A small but vocal group of students began speaking out after his suspension was made public. I haven't heard of one kid who didn't support him or even like had a problem with him. I don't really think he should have gotten too much trouble. They should have given him a warning. 
I don't think it's right. Tonight, he faces an uphill battle. He's chosen to represent himself in what amounts to an in-house jury trial. In Acts 4, Peter and John were in a similar trial and were told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Their answer? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That verse right there solidified in my mind that I was going to teach what was honoring to God. I was going to teach in my classroom in a way that if God was my supervisor, he'd be pleased with me, not any man. Not only are teachers being censored, outspoken students also often receive the same treatment. His love is that something more we all desire. It's unprejudiced, it's merciful, it's free, it's real, it's huge, and it's everlasting. God's love is so great that he gave up his, gave up his only son. Brittany's microphone was abruptly silenced. She was prevented from finishing her valedictorian speech because of Christ's name. The school had no problem with a God. They just didn't want to hear about the one true God. Kicked out of class for quoting the Bible, a Racine High School student gets sent to the principal's office for talking about Jesus. These elementary school children were handing out candy canes at school, for instance, or pencils that said, Jesus is the reason for the season, that kind of thing on them. The principals took them away and said, hey, this is a public school. You can't be exhorting religion here. We've been getting a lot of feedback from our viewers about the Papillion La Vista math teacher who was fired last night. The school board decision is generating a lot of comments on our website. One viewer defends the teacher. He says maybe if we had a little more respect for our creator, we would have less problems in the world today. I, for one, find our creator more useful than 95% of the math being taught today. So what were Robert Ziegler's three strikes? Insubordination unprofessionalism and neglecting my duties as a teacher, those three things. The real reason I believe was conveyed about midway through the trial when a principal said this, if Robert would stop saying the name Jesus, we would welcome him back into the classroom even at this point. But he has communicated that he will not stop saying the name of Jesus. And so, you know, many things were said about why they were terminating me, but I believe it simply came down to Jesus. Hi. How would I get to Manhattan from here? Holland Tunnel. I had an opportunity to meet one of the most important public school whistleblowers of our era. 20 years ago, he walked away from the teaching profession for good. This was no ordinary teacher. This was a 30-year public school veteran, so accomplished within the teaching profession, he even won the New York City and New York State Teacher of the Year awards back to back. Why would someone so successful in a profession want to speak so boldly against it? I had to hear his story. I started out being picked I think the year was 1989. It's New York City Teacher of the Year. My kids had written this uh, incredible record, really incredible, you know, which I had very little to do with. I just took my boot off the back of their necks and, and sort of imitated the best homeschoolers, at least in my opinion. So in my acceptance speech, which has been reprinted about 1,700 times all over the world. I tried to tell 
the audience who didn't want to hear it exactly what it was that I was teaching. It had nothing to do with English. It had a lot to do with certain attitudes. What was the reaction? The reaction was dead silence. Nobody said anything. Nobody clapped. Nobody booed. <laughs> Interesting reaction. John Gatto teaches eighth graders. Though he's been teaching in New York City schools for 26 years, he disdains grades, tests, and conventional ways of teaching. He'd rather not teach in the classroom, but the school requires him to four days a week. Confining people in rooms and monitoring every minute of their lives in those rooms couldn't possibly fit into any definition of education that's come from any corner of the world. None. Let's very quickly review what these might I don't teach the kids work. that education's bad. I say that schooling's bad. We spent a long time studying the great people who had never gone to school and the great Americans who had never gone to school. George Washington had two years, period. He had no more time to waste. Thomas Jefferson had zero. They had no schooling. They had great educations because they were talking to real people from the time they were small. They were being given, Jefferson was in charge of a 2,500 acre plantation with 250 employees when he was 12 years old. John Taylor Gatto contrasted the successful education of our founding fathers with what is happening in the schools today. You're stealing these kids and confining them for 12 years and the kids have to be put in a rigid class system where the classes are encouraged not to cooperate with one another. I was trying to get the students through their parents, stay after school, let's do some makeup. And I, I won over a lot of parents that way because they could see that I cared about their child. I wanted them to learn. But then there was resistance started uh, by some other parents. R.C. Murray is another teacher who became frustrated with what passes for education in the public schools. His experiences inspired him to write his book, Legally Stupid. The problem was is the, the ones who refused to do what I was asking them to do, actually read and actually write. Uh, the system had always set it up so that the teacher was expected to read to the students in the classroom all the way through high school. And I thought, uh, well, this is not uh, daycare. I don't need to be reading stories to seniors. A teacher was angrily making copies of something because she had to give a test to a student that had a label on him that said he was an, a non-reader. And this was a reading test. So for the reading test, she had to read to the student. Then she had to write down his responses verbally because uh, he wasn't expected to write either. It is a waste of time. And yet this child will get all the way through the school system saying that he had English 1, English 2, English 3, English 4, and he's supposed to be ready for college. A high percentage of the kids that come to us from public school, uh, as high as 70%, have to take some form of remediation when they get to us. In other words, they got a high school education, they want to go to college, but they're not ready. And the big concern, particularly in Florida, 
is, is passing a certain test that you have to pass every year. And if enough students don't pass it, the school itself is graded as an A, B, C, or D school. If you are not an A school, you're in big trouble, you lose funding and all this kind of thing. So teaching the test becomes the issue as opposed to teaching the children. They were supposed to do writing assignments in what is called group learning. Mixed ability grouping is what they call it. They put one in uh, motivated child, they call it accelerated gifted child now. They put that one student uh, in a group with three or four, uh, call them diverse learners, uh, which means that they're supposed to, uh, their learning style says that they don't learn the same way everybody else does. But really they're unmotivated students. And they put them in a group setting, give them an assignment. The uh, accelerated gifted student will actually do all the work, but everybody gets a grade, the same grade. The way public education is structured, it's almost impossible to satisfy that goal of career ready or college ready. Why should you graduate from high school not ready for either? That's, that's just not right. Now when you walk through a, a high school or elementary school, either one, you will see pictures all over the place and artwork and paper dolls. Forty years ago, you would see essays. You would see reports all on bulletin boards with the big A+. Plus. You know, this was what was championed back then. Learn to express yourself in writing. Not anymore. If you have a child to raise right now, you, you don't want to use your child uh, as the tool to reform the school system and then have them get an indoctrination instead of an education. If the schools have one job and we would assume teaching to read and write would be its main job, why would it become so bad at it? Well, there's one place to visit that can explain just that. Neil McCluskey is the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in D.C. He wrote the book Feds in the Classroom, how big government corrupts, cripples, and compromises American education. It's a major error when people are not happy with what the Department of Education does, and they say, well, what I've got to do is I have to try and change this thing because it's almost impossible to change it. Every child is going to get the exact same thing, and that's what this department is trying to do nationally. But you need that specialization because all kids are different. All parents are different. Government education doesn't have competitors. The Department of Education doesn't have any competitors. Everything that's done is for generally the benefit of the politicians, first and foremost, and that usually means the most powerful special interests, like the teachers unions and the administrators, those people who are most motivated to be in the politics because it's their livelihood that's at stake, and who can most easily organize to do that. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! Most teachers say they're doing it for the kids and not for the money. But then they always protest for two things. Fewer kids and more money. Parents need to be aware that many teachers in America are members of liberal unions that clearly despise conservative and Christian values. Why are these conservative and right-wing picking on NEA and its affiliates? 
NBA and its affiliates have been singled out because they are the most effective unions in the United States. And they are the nation's leading advocates for public education and the type of liberal social and economic agenda that these groups find unacceptable. Do you still think that the teachers' unions are fighting for the kids? It is not because we care about children, and it is not because we have a vision of a great public school for every child. NEA and its affiliates are effective advocates because we have power. Power and money. That's what Washington is all about. They have so much of it, but it never seems enough. But it's also true that fixing our schools will cost some money. Recruiting and rewarding the best teachers costs money. Making it possible for families to send their kids to college costs money. Money, money, money. You have to pay for this. So for someone to consume private education or to homeschool, they have to say, I'm going to give up on my $12,000, $13,000 a year that are paid in taxes for my kid. I'm going to give up that free education, free in that it's already paid for because you have no choice, and then I'm going to pay twice for it. And on top of that, we can't even use the facilities we pay for. Don't believe me? After school, anyone's welcome here, but for liability purposes... Oh, I'm watching. It's okay. It's just, I mean... We're not concerned about liabilities. Our well, kids will be okay. I'm sure, but... We're going to use this park because they're homeschoolers. We pay for the park. I mean, if you have school kids here, you really... Well, my kids are school kids, too. Yeah, okay. Thomas Jefferson said that to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. For a long time, there was a pretty big difference between Republicans and Democrats. The budget plan I submit to you on February 8th will realize major savings by dismantling the departments of energy and education. As recently as 1996, the Republican Party was still saying in their platform, the Department of Education is unconstitutional and needs to be eliminated. The federal government's involvement in government schools is totally unconstitutional totally beyond the purview of the federal government. And even when the states are in charge, they have permitted horrible things to go forward. They are truly indoctrination academies. During the Nixon administration, Howard Phillips headed two federal agencies, one of which he was appointed explicitly to dismantle. The government schools are doing their best to train future generations to be servants of the state, uh, to... Uh, adopt the, uh, the ideology of uh, dependence. If our intention is to honor God and his son, we must remove our children from the government schools. The family is the cornerstone of, uh, of a just society. And uh, for the family to be a strong institution, mom and dad have to play the leading role uh, in the education of their children. If you meet someone who's a public school educator, what's your exhortation to them as much as you can to get them to get their kids out of the schools? Well, do you want your children to become adults believing the things that you believe? Or do you want them instead to accept beliefs which are antithetical to your own and which manifest disrespect for your culture, for your history, for your beliefs, for your faith? I mean, do you want your children to belong to you? or to the state.
It seems in Washington there's no limit to the amount of statist control that they seek. Listen to Arne Duncan, the current Secretary of Education. I think our school should be open 12, 13, 14 hours a day. So it's not just lengthening, obviously, the school day, but a wide variety of after-school activities, drama, arts, sports, chess, debate, academic enrichment, programs for parents, GED, ESL, family literacy nights, potluck dinners, where schools truly become the centers of the community, great things happen. Potluck dinners? The center of our social lives? Wait a minute, this sounds a bit like a church to me. And what about our families, our neighbors, and our friends? Surely that's where we should look for community, not the government schools. Could it be that the government-run schools are in a real sense trying to replace the church and family as the most influential institution in our culture? When Arne Duncan was the head of the Chicago Department of Education, he proposed the establishment of the first high school designed for homosexual, bisexual and transgender teens. One of the people advocating for this abomination was Kevin Jennings, a radical homosexual activist who was later appointed by Secretary Duncan as nothing less than our nation's safe school czar. As the Assistant Deputy Secretary of Education, leading the Obama administration's efforts to make schools safe for all students. Washington has a role to play, but we need people at every level if we're really going to create change in America. When a student hangs up a sign for their Gay-Straight Alliance meeting, they are creating change. When a teacher overhears a kid saying, that's so gay, and interrupts and says, what do you mean by that? They are creating change. Mr. Jennings, who wrote the foreword for a book entitled Queering Elementary Education, also endorsed It's Elementary, a video designed to train educators in homosexual indoctrination of little kids in public schools across America. Here we go, Asha's moms. I think that I'm a better teacher now because I know that in the classroom, I have to be here for all of my students. I have to affirm who they are. Can't have two moms, she said briskly, but I do. They are stealing our children, but because they are leaving the body of the child with us, we don't even know what's happening. For the last 30 years, Erwin Lutzer has been the senior pastor of Moody Church in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood. Dr. Lutzer has authored more than 30 books and is heard on three radio broadcasts nationwide. Values clarification says that every child should make up his own or her own values. In point of fact, that's not the way it works. Today, the law says that um, if you're the same sex, two men and two women, you can't get married. It is against the law. And I thought that it might be kind of fun for us to sort of be pretend judges for a few minutes. What I'm going to give each of you is a sheet that just tells you that um, some people think that it's wrong for gays to get married, that it's not natural, and that it goes against what a family is. Other people think that the state should not decide these things, that it should just be up to two adults to decide what they want to do. What do you think the answer to these questions are? Should, should gays be allowed to marry? Should they not? What I want you to do is have a discussion. You begin with relativism, and then you ask questions that are open-ended regarding abortion, regarding family planning, regarding sexuality. It's just like any other people. They just can't get married like that. I mean, one might have a disease and they won't get married and they won't even know about it. 
and then maybe the, the other person might catch it, and then they won't be able to get married. Yeah, but a man and a woman could have a disease. What you want to do is to make sure that each child can express whatever he likes. Yeah, should get married. Guys, they love someone, let them get married. Remember what Sarah said about the kids in the playground being told by a teacher that they might be gay and just not know it yet? Parents, they want to think that their teachers are doing good, but they don't know what really goes on inside of the classroom. So you think that they can't get married? I don't know. Who cares if we will gay? Do you care? No. At the end of the day, this is not a case of every child making up his own mind. The goal of value clarification has been achieved. The outcome has already been determined by the curriculum. And in this way, education undercuts parents, it undercuts the church, and most assuredly, it undercuts the absolutes of the Bible. I've always had an interest in Nazi Germany, particularly why it was that the church bought into Hitler's agenda to the extent that it did, and what are the lessons that we can learn from Nazism. What makes a Nazi? How does he get that way? So I wrote the book entitled, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. During World War II, the US government hired Walt Disney to produce a film warning Americans about some of the Nazi tactics Pastor Lutzer is concerned about. Hitler was very clear. The soul, he says, belongs to the Reich. It belongs to the German Empire. And in Nazi schools, there was indoctrination. Now, I need to say up front that it's possible to over-exaggerate the parallels between America and Nazi Germany. But at the same time, I wrote the book because I was interested in those various streams of culture and streams of belief that would allow Nazism to develop. I think I should add lesbian too. It's already there. It's already in the classroom. The kids are already thinking about it. There's ways that are pretty standard elementary curriculum across this country, which, you know, with a little inventiveness, you can start going on. So what you're really doing is having them affirm together those values that they have now accepted. And what are the values? Relativism, humanism. But the bottom line is this. The schools cannot do what the home must do. And ask God to help you to know how your child is to be educated. That isn't the bathroom. How could the school system get this bad? Didn't America start with clear Christian convictions and practices? What happened? When the Puritans came to America, they said one of the reasons why they left England and were coming to the New World is so that they could have stronger training for their children. The main textbook they were using, of course, was the Bible. Many people are familiar with the New England Primer, which taught children how to read with ABC lessons tied to the Bible. So when you learned your A, you didn't learn about apples, you learned about Adam, and attached to each letter of the alphabet was a little woodcut and then a biblical truth. In the case of uh, Adam, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So children were taught their basic curriculum 
anchored in biblical truth and theological principle. The founders were convinced that for a country to be successful, it had to be virtuous. And there was no way that you could have a virtuous republic without training in the principles of religion, specifically in the principles of Christianity. So in early America, our founders had a biblical outlook that included an education that was grounded in the Word of God. The Puritans required a common school. The goal was to have a literate populace for the purpose of understanding Scripture. Now, over time, those commitments began to change, and so the convictions about the necessity of Christianity and Christian education was replaced with the idea of a more generic, theistic education. The same year the New England Primer was published, another book appeared, one that would radically transform educational philosophy for generations. That book was called Essay Concerning Human Understanding by John Locke. John Locke's philosophy presented the idea that the human mind at birth is a tabula rasa, a blank slate. This was a complete rejection of the doctrine of original sin, one of the notable separating points between Christian education and the humanistic public school system. America's public schools got it wrong at this fundamental level, the very nature of the child. It's quite remarkable that we have allowed this particular educational philosophy to dominate America for so long when the early history of the country indicated that it was a family responsibility, a church responsibility, not the responsibility of the civil government to educate the nation's children. If you go back in history, you will see that uh, the government's involvement in education was very minimal. During America's history, homeschooling was never considered alternative education. In fact, for many notable Americans, it was their primary means of education. Many remarkable leaders were raised as either partially or completely schooled at home. During the 18th century, Enlightenment philosophy began to take hold in America. The popularity and influence of anti-Christian Enlightenment thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau of France cast a lasting shadow across the colonies that would undermine the liberty Americans enjoyed at the end of the 18th century. As we moved into the 1800s, the spectre of mass public education would soon appear on the horizon. All the clues were leading me to Boston, the birthplace of compulsory education in America. Since the early 70s, Samuel Blumenfeld has written some of the most important books on education in America, including The Victims of Dick and Jane and Is Public Education Necessary? This is, uh, this is Lexington Green. We're here not to do with the Revolutionary War, but to do with education. Can you tell me right. why this site or this area has something to do with education? Well, because of the first normal school mm -hmm. that was built right across from here. It was the first teacher's college run by the government. As James G. Carter, one of the Harvard Unitarians, wrote, a teacher's college, a state-controlled teacher's college, can be an engine to sway the public sentiment, the public morals, and the public religion more powerful than any other in the possession of government, hmm. you see. So he knew the power that rested in having teachers being trained by the government. He said if they were being trained by the government, then they would do the government's will. Mm -hmm. 
which is what we have today in America, you see. So we have, we have a significant problem in America. We've, start, we've embraced socialism, yes. and we are far down the line, national health, nationalized health care, all the welfare that we, we right. have, bailing out banks. And the, the, it looks like the, the pub, would you say it's fair to say the public schools are a, an engine to that process? And not only that, but the public schools themselves were a form of socialism. A state government education system is a socialist system. Mm-hmm. Now, people don't realize that socialism was uh, an ideology in this country as early as the 1820s. And it was brought to this country by Robert Owen, who believed that the cause of all of our problems was religion and that children could be educated in such a way without religion to become anything you wanted. So he came to this country and he created the first secular communist colony in America called New Harmony, Indiana. And he thought that he could reform the universe by getting rid of religion. The best way to do that is to educate children without religion so that they would create this new communist utopia in which everybody was equal. I'm from Lanarkshire, Scotland, so I took an opportunity to go back home to visit a place called New Lanark. This was Robert Owen's first experiment in a socialist utopian society, right next to where I was born and brought up. It's a quaint place and sits in a beautiful valley on the Falls of Clyde. Its charm is deceptive. Behind it lies the dangerous philosophy the atheist and socialist Robert Owen would soon import to the United States. Usually everything that comes to America from Scotland is brilliant. Well, in this case, Scottish Enlightenment ideas started to impact America. We will receive your children at an early age, almost as soon as they can walk. Mothers and families, you will have less care and anxiety about them, while the children will be prevented from acquiring any bad habits. Believe me, my friends, you are very deficient with regard to the best modes of training your children. The second group that were instrumental in creating the public education system were the Harvard Unitarians. Unitarianism was a a new form of Christianity who rejected the Trinity. They also wanted to have public schools. It made sense to a lot of people who bought the idea that man was perfectible, morally perfectible, and that all you needed was a good education. Uh, The Owenite socialists and the Harvard Unitarians joined forces together to push for this public education system. And then, of course, they were finally joined by the Protestants, who were very much concerned about Catholic immigration in this country, to create this Protestant public education system that would prevent the Catholics from taking over America. Some of the social engineers were saying to the Christian parents, you know, you really don't want to mess up your nice Protestant society that you have here in New England. So simply send all the children to the classrooms and we'll make sure that they're uniformly Protestant. And so the Protestants began to compromise with that idea and they surrendered their children to a curriculum that was not neutral. And Boston became an experimental city for the powers of the state. And Horace Mann and others were pushing for a government-controlled education curriculum Horace Mann wanted to concentrate on education to bring in social reform. He travelled to Prussia and was impressed with a model of education that involved centralised, compulsory, state-funded schools. This is what he imported to America. We 
who are engaged in the sacred cause of education are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. This was the beginning of state-certified teachers and much of what we know in education today. And so in 1819, both in Prussia and in Boston, the very first compulsory forced education classrooms opened, forcing the population to send their children there. This reminded me of something John Taylor Garrow told me about the architects of modern education. He patterned it after Prussian Germany, which set out to produce a dependable army that could be rented to its neighbors. This is very important. Remember Franklin Graham? Let's don't surrender to public schools. Let's take them back. What we're finding here is that the very foundation of American compulsory education isn't Christian. It isn't even particularly American. This new compulsory education system was surprisingly close to the school system proposed by Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto. We must abolish the family. We must destroy the most hallowed of relations. We must replace home education with social. In fact, the 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto demanded free education for all. This was a tactical attack on the biblical family. If we had a small farm economy, as we did have for quite a long, long time, you need young people who can do anything and everything, who are self-reliant and don't say, oh, daddy, the plow broke. You know, you look at it and you, you say, oh, that, that's what went wrong, I'll fix it. But we don't have that kind of economy. We have a mass production economy. The Industrial Revolution required a growing number of obedient factory workers. The schools became the training ground for those workers. For the average American public school child, things were about to get much worse, thanks to a man by the name of G. Stanley Hall, a Harvard psychologist who in 1889 became the first president of Clark University. Hall was also the first president of the American Psychological Association and brought Sigmund Freud to the US, who was of course a radical evolutionary psychiatrist, and also a man who stated that religious belief was a neurotic obsession. Religion can now be set aside in favor of reason and science. Dankeschön. This would become an era dominated by what I would call the mad evolutionary scientists. Ivan Pavlov was the famous Russian biologist who in the 1890s tested his theories on dogs. But did you know that he also experimented on children? A few years later, educator Edward Thorndike created a theory of human learning based on his research with animals. John B. Watson followed with his controversial Little Albert experiment. These men viewed the child as a simple biological machine whose actions could be completely determined by external stimuli. They laid the scientific foundation for modern educational psychology and philosophy that is taught in colleges of education everywhere to this day. If you want to condition a rat, don't you pair the ringing of a bell with something? Well, this is stop thinking, get up, and move to another class. These are habit training exercises. At the turn of the century, an educator would appear who would have a lasting impact throughout the 20th century. His name would become synonymous with progressive education, John Dewey. You can't make socialists out of individualists. 
Children who know how to think for themselves spoil the harmony of the collective society which is coming, where everyone is interdependent. In 1896, he established the Experimental University of Chicago's Laboratory School, where the new trend in evolutionary psychology was to be tested on real children. This was where Darwinian science cruelly met education. To these quacks, the child had no soul, no sin, no emotions, no moral character. So over a hundred years ago, we can see that the school bus was already loaded with everything from socialists, humanists, Unitarians, utopians, evolutionists, and shrinks. I wonder how many more centuries we have to see this playing out in front of our eyes before we say something crazy going on here. Is there an idea more radical in the history of the human race than turning your children over to total strangers who you know nothing about and having those strangers work on your child's mind out of your sight for a period of 12 years. Could there be a more radical idea than that? Back in colonial days in America, if you proposed that as an idea, they'd burn you at the stake, you mad person. It's a mad idea. A few notable Christian men did speak out at the end of the 19th century. Any training which attempts to be non-Christian is anti-Christian. Robert Louis Dabney, Chief of Staff to Stonewall Jackson. God is the rightful supreme master and owner of all reasonable creatures, and their nearest and highest duties are to Him. Hence, to train a soul away from Him is robbery of God. He has not, indeed, committed to the state the duty of leading souls to Him as its appropriate task. This is committed to the family and to His church. Public education is antichrist. And A.A. A. Hodge, principal of Princeton Seminary. It is the catechetical arm of a godless government. It is an idolatrous institution, aggressively hostile to your faith. Its intention is to purge the knowledge of Christ and Christianity from the minds of your children and own them for the God-called state. A comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling enginery for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief which the sin-rent world has ever seen. Sadly, on the horizon is an event that would guarantee Darwin a permanent seat on the school bus in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee. The whole thing was engineered to develop publicity for Dayton. They were looking for something to attract attention, draw business to the community. And when they saw the ACLU wanted to test the law, right. let's try it. Tom Davis is the director of public information at Bryan College. They got together at Robinson's Drug Store, uh -huh. and they had arranged for the school superintendent and the principal of the high school, who was also the biology teacher, uh -huh. and some lawyers, and a magistrate in case anything got out of hand, of course. But the principal, Mr. Ferguson, said, I don't think I want to do this. So then they had to find a teacher and settled on Mr. Scopes. This is the judge and his family, Darrow, Scopes, Neil, Brian arriving. H.L. Mencken called this the monkey trial. 
And so somebody had to bring a monkey, uh, a chimpanzee here. We are in the circuit courtroom of the Ray County Courthouse in Dayton, Tennessee. In this courtroom in 1925, John Scopes was tried for violating a state law that made it illegal for any teacher that taught any theory that contradicts the biblical account of human creation and to teach instead that man is descended from a lower order of animals. And I like to look at that as really a discussion of who is authoritative, which is authoritative. How do you decide this is true or that's true? What is the role of government in something as simple as what teachers teach in school? That happened right here. Is this the actual book or just as one of the textbooks? One of the, one of the, I mean, that is the, the correct edition. edition. Um, I've got another one open to the offending pages. So on this page um, says, Doctrine of Evolution, the number of animal species, man's place in nature, instincts, and evolution of man. If you go on page further, you will find part of this book that talks about the evolution of the races of man, and it speaks about these various races, the African, the American Indian, the Oriental. But then it goes on to say, and finally, the most highly developed race of all, the Caucasians, as represented by the people of Europe and North America. That is blatant racism based upon evolutionary theory and this is the text the American Civil Liberties Union was defending there in the Scopes trial. The fear of God is not the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the death of wisdom. Skepticism and doubt lead to study and investigation, and investigation is the beginning of wisdom. While there was a hollow victory for the creationists, the publicity surrounding the event framed them all as cooks. The Scopes trial was technically a legal victory for the creationists, the law that prohibited teaching evolution in Tennessee was upheld as constitutional, but there followed a retreat by the church and even by many evangelicals. And as we look to further cases down the line, we see that creationists have lost most of the time. New York, 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that state officials may not compose an official state prayer. Pennsylvania, 1963, no state law or school board may require that passages from the Bible be read or that the Lord's Prayer be recited in the public schools. Arkansas, 1968, the state's law prohibiting the teaching of evolution in a public school is unconstitutional. Alabama, 1985, statutes authorizing silent and voluntary prayer in public schools violate the First Amendment. Louisiana, 1987, a state law requiring that creation science be taught along with evolution is struck down. Texas, the year 2000, student-led prayer prior to football games is banned. Pennsylvania, 2005, teaching intelligent design as an alternative to evolution is prohibited. Since Dayton, things have just gotten worse. With every attempt by Christians to introduce religion in the classroom shot down by the Supreme Court. Today, we definitely are seeing the flip side, the same battle 180 degrees removed from what was argued in 1925. And whose fault is that? You know, did we as Christians back off and let this happen? Question is, can we recover that? I don't know. I do not know. 
1974, thousands of concerned parents in Kanawha County, West Virginia, decided to take on their school board head-on. Offers of the language arts adoption will be submitted for review to a committee appointed by the Board of Education and representative of a cross-section of the community. That is Alice Moore, then a member of the Kanawha County School Board. Christians and their conservative allies objected to anti-Christian and anti-American textbooks, so they shut down West Virginia's largest school system. All of those books are coming out. This committee... Carl Priest was a teacher there during the controversy and has written a book about it. Alice Moore was a young mother who was elected to the Board of Education. It was in April of 74 that uh, she discovered uh, the textbooks that were objectionable. By June, the whole county was aroused over what was going on. Lots of memories here. This is where the peaceful protesters were arrested. By September, when school opened, the protest had grown so strong that the uh, school system was shut down for a few days. The parents kept their children out. Right now, on this year's adoption, that wouldn't change the direction of public education. This kind of thing is going to take us a while. So, in the end, what did the protesters accomplish? We won the battle back then. We got the books out, but that was only temporary. Even if uh, parents could be in in every classroom all day long, they would still not be able to stop the onslaught that has occurred since 1974. 25 years after West Virginia's textbook war, Kanawha County parents were still battling their school board over the content of books assigned to their children. Uh, My name is Brad Liston, and I am a parent of three students in Kanawha County Schools. And I'm here, well, what I'd like to do is just read you part of my daughter's homework. Maybe they realize later that I began to intentionally lose the game. And what did they make of the time they untied us and Hester said to me, hey, I felt... The book is so graphic, Mr. Liston is asked to stop reading, igniting an argument between the board members. Uh, Mr. Liston, really, we uh, I understand you want to make some point. There's some inappropriate things in a book, but I don't think well, we oh, need to. Well, wait, wait a minute. If a student in the 11th grade has to read it, at my age, I can hear it. There are parts in this book that there, if there were illustrations, we all would be arrested for distributing pornographic material to the children. My daughter wanted to sing a song for show choir at a concert, (laughs) Jesus Loves Me. She couldn't do it because it was offensive and maybe offended someone in the audience. But yet, she's required to read this type of material. There are many earnest Christians dedicating themselves to school reform. Here in West Virginia, the battle raged for years, all to no avail. Psalm 127 aptly warns that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Public schools cannot be monitored. They cannot be redeemed. I've been there. I was there for 34 years. And I'm telling you, wherever you are, and I was in the buckle of the Bible Belt, you need to get your children out. They're in danger, if not physical danger, serious spiritual danger. Uh, our mechanic is uh, inspecting the bus, so we're just going to see if we can get on the road in the next five minutes. Or can we continue just patching the system up to keep it rolling along, or are some more radical steps necessary? Duct tape. 
it's hard for me to understand why Christian leaders are still calling for the return of the Bible, prayer, or creation in the government schools. When we talk about creation science, there's one place I knew we could visit to find out a lot more. We went to visit the Answers in Genesis Creation Museum near Cincinnati. We've had a lot of atheists here at the Creation Museum. And there was one particular atheist who wrote up an article about the Creation Museum later on. One of the things that she basically said was, the problem with the Creation Museum, it is so well done that when children come here, they're going to believe it. (laughs) And, you know, it's almost like you Christians aren't allowed to do something that helps make it real to people. You, You can't use this latest technology. You can't use all these dinosaur models. You know, the thing is, when kids come here, uh, they love it. Their eyes open like this. They actually walk through the Bible. I first met Australian Ken Ham in England about 12 years ago, and I've always had a great respect for him. He's been warning parents about the problems with the state schools for at least a couple of decades. If the textbooks don't start with the Bible as foundational to their thinking, then they are secular in philosophy. If they don't start from the scripture, then they start with man's opinions. The other thing is we ought not to get the idea that, oh, in this biology book, there's a chapter on evolution, so we'll talk about creation there. That solves that. Now we can read the rest of the book, and that's okay. Not at all. I asked Mr. Ham what he thought were the reasons Christians are losing the battle for the soul of America. When they threw God and the Bible, prayer, creation out of the public schools, claiming we've thrown religion out, now we're neutral, they actually threw Christianity out, and they actually replaced it with an anti-God religion. It's the religion of naturalism or the religion of atheism. They've fallen into this trap because, you know, from a biblical perspective, the Bible says you're either for Christ or against. You either walk in light or you walk in darkness. There is no neutral position. So if a system is not for Christ, then there's one, only one other option. It's against. They don't realize that their kids are being indoctrinated in a philosophy that starts with man determining truth. That's a presupposition. And they're trying to add Christian morality in up here the Bible is not just a book of stories, it's not just a book of morality, it's not just a book of spiritual things. The Bible is a book of history. It's a revelation from God to build an entire way of thinking in every area of life. Secular education, they start with man determines truth, and so therefore that's the foundation to build their entire way of thinking in every area of life. You can't Christianize something from the top down. It has to start from the foundation up. You know, the Bible says, train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The child at home is being taught certain values, certain absolutes, but he goes to school and discovers that mom and dad are wrong, that there are no absolutes, that he can basically do whatever he likes, and that society is going to be built upon that kind of a moral and ethical system. And I say to parents today, God has given you the responsibility of being in charge of your child's body, most assuredly, but also his or her own soul. The souls of American children have been placed in a system that pushes its own social and political agenda at the expense of the child. It's no surprise that a nation that surrenders its children to a yellow bus loaded with every enemy of Christ would see a significant decline of faith and Christian ethics. As the bus still travels on, we might wonder, what's the end game of this huge experiment?
Come on, kid. What you waiting for? And we're back on the Generations Radio broadcast with Colin Gunn, producer of some of the most controversial films. I, I, I think these have got to be the most controversial films ever produced in the 1990s and the 2000s. So here you are at the end of the tour, okay? The bus is coming to an end. You're just about ready to put the final wraps on this project. So what are you doing out here in Denver, Colorado? We are here to interview Brian Rohrbach. Now, he's a wonderful man. We spent the day with him, and we talked about what, what he believes about public schools. A little over six years ago, we adopted our two precious children in Ukraine, and we have been blessed in an unimaginable way by God. And we made the commitment before we went that we will homeschool these kids that no matter what we have to do, there is no chance that they will ever set foot into a government school. Mr. Rorba has a very good reason for feeling so strongly about the public schools. I was a single father, divorced, with one son, Daniel, and I was a Christian, uh, a believer, but very weak, um, lukewarm. My son was in a public school. Quite often, after school, I'd pick up my son, or my coworker would pick up my son, and he'd come over to my shop. Well, let's take a walk up here. When it was time to leave, we closed up the shop, and Dan said, hey, I'm kind of hungry. And I said, well, call your mom, and be sure it's okay, and that you're not missing dinner or something, and, and we can get something to eat. And he said, well, that's all right. I'll eat dinner anyway. So we stopped and got, got something, and we sat in the truck and talked for a while. And then uh, I dropped him off at his mom's house. And when he was getting out, he looked, um, you know, jumped, jumped out of the truck, and, and he said, uh, I love you, Dad. I'll see you tomorrow. And I said, I love you too, Dan. I'll see you tomorrow. And then I backed out of the driveway, and I looked up uh, just as he was going in the house, and he stopped with the door open and waved with a big smile. And those were the last words I ever said to my son. On the morning of April 20th, before noon, I received a phone call. And in a panic-stricken voice, Dan's mom said to me, Ryan, have you heard from Dan? Do you know what's going on? And I said, no. And she told me that two gunmen had entered Columbine High School with machine guns and hand grenades, and they were killing kids. And so me and my co-worker dropped what we were doing, and we headed towards the school. And we got to where we could look across a park and see the school, and there were two police cars there blocking our way, and we couldn't go any further. And we stood there watching, and a lady burst out her front door, and she was screaming and crying. And she said to the police, save that boy, do something, save that boy. And that's really where I realized how bad things were. We heard they were gonna start bringing school buses. And the first bus came and I watched as the kids got off and they'd run to their parents and they'd cry and they'd hug. And all too often I heard this hollow promise that you'll never set foot in that school again. 
when the last bus came. When the last bus came, it was empty. When the next morning came, we opened the newspaper and there was a picture of a young man wearing green, a green shirt and blue jeans, lying dead on the sidewalk was my son. That was our only notification. I knew how bad the public schools were, and I knew that because I was in the public schools. And as parents, I think we want to believe that things have gotten better when, in fact, they have gotten much worse. It was my responsibility to make sure that my son was safe, that he was educated properly. But I failed that. I put him in a pagan school where they teach there is no God. There is no creation. There's evolution based on a cosmic accident. And evolution breaks down to one simple belief. And that is that the strong kill the weak as a form of survival and that there's nothing wrong with that. Both of the killers, Klebold and Harris, had received good grades from their Columbine High teachers for their graphically violent writings. They showed their violent videos in the school classroom with approval. One of them wore a t-shirt emblazoned with the words natural selection, the other with the word wrath. Ideas do have consequences. They had taken evolution much further than most people do, but if you stop and think through it, their logic was correct if evolution is true. And yet it is taught in the school and I put my son there. Even though I'm a Christian. So when we talk about my son's murder, yes, it's right to condemn these two murderers. It's right to condemn the school system that taught these wicked things. But you must remember, I'm the one who put him there. And I'm the one who's responsible for his death. Since Dan's death, there have been over 400 school-associated violent deaths all across America. Michael Moore and the liberal media would have you believe the problem is with guns. How many commentators have you heard mention the schools themselves as the key culprit? There are many ways to destroy a child. And it may have taken a school shooting to wake us up, to see the danger, but that's a very small danger compared to all the other things that go on that can destroy our children. Our bus struggled to stay running. Several times we lay stranded at the side of the road with one thing or another. Eventually it became obvious that with all its broken parts and its relative lack of safety, that the vehicle itself might be worth less to us than its scrap value. This leads me to think, what are public schools worth to us as Christians? 
Our nation lies broken in part as a result of a 200-year experiment in godless education. By God's grace, is there any way that we can recover? Over the last few years, others have joined the call to exhort families to leave government education in a mass exodus. I say trying to fix public education is like trying to teach a a pig how to dance. Uh, You get dirty and the pig gets mad. One of them is E. Ray Moore, the director of the Exodus Mandate and the author of Let My Children Go. Christians realize that we're losing uh, our civilization, so they're out there trying to get people elected to office uh, when they've neglected their own sons and daughters sitting in their homes and in their churches. And I believe the Lord is not going to bless any of these efforts until we first turn back to our own children. As uh, Malachi 4, 6 says, the hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The heart of Christian education begins in the heart of God, and the heart of God is communicated in the Word of God. More and more pastors are teaching their flocks what the Bible says about education. Pastor Scott Brown is the director of the National Center for Family Integrated Churches. It's always mystified me why parents think that it's lawful for them to send their children into our public education system, which is, which is dedicated to teaching paganism. If people found out that I was going to start sending my children to a Muslim school, they'd have a conniption fit. If I was, if I was going to send my children to a Hindu school, uh, I, I would have serious problems. I'd probably get fired. But they have no problem with sending their children to pagan schools. Scripture says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And what we do with that is we translate that to mean it's a good thing when my children walk in the truth. Now that's part of the whole of that meaning, but there's a lot more there. No greater joy, which means my life, if I want joy, and I do, if I want joy in my life, I have no more direct calling than to labor to help my children live faithful, obedient, godly lives, which is why for my own sake, I can't afford to send them off to a place where they can't learn about Jesus. All education means to draw out. That's the whole meaning of education. What you draw out of the student into something. The child is drawn out into service. And the question is, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus made it clear when he said, he who is not with me is against me. One of the greatest scriptures in all the Bible that relates to education is Psalm 1. We don't think of it as an education scripture, but it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. What kind of counsel are your children receiving in the government schools? Is it godly counsel? Is it based in the fear of the Lord? Uh, Is it proclaiming Jesus as Lord over all of creation, including math and science and history? No, of course not. The education they're getting in the government schools is ungodly counsel. The scripture says you're blessed if you avoid that. And it says, blessed is a man who does not stand in the way of sinners. Well, when your children are in that environment and they're walking the halls and they're in the locker rooms, they're hearing about all the music and the movies of the world and the sensuality and sin of the world, all the temptations that are there, that's the way of sinners. And we're instructed to avoid that. And then finally, do not sit in the seat of the scornful or the mocker. 
Children in these schools develop an attitude of resentment toward authority, towards parents, towards teachers, and that is something that we're told to avoid. But his delight, the student's delight, is to be on the law of the Lord, and on that law he is to meditate both day and night. You can't have a student meditating on God's law both day and night if they're in a government school. It just can't happen. My greatest concern as I think about the United States of America is for the next generation. I foresee very dark days coming to this country. And what I would like to see is a generation of parents raised up by God who say we are not going in the direction of our society. We've got to do something different. The schools are failing. The society is ripping our families apart. Our, our young men, our young women are aimless, purposeless. They have no vision in life. The economy is falling. The social systems that we've grown up with are coming apart at the seams. Our entertainment is nihilistic. The political state is socialistic, Marxist. This is called devastation. Things are bad, but for us, things are really good because we're not relying on the state to raise our children anymore. We're going to raise our own children. We're going to educate our own children. We're not going to rely on the state for welfare, for inheritance, for social security. We're going to pass an inheritance on to our children. We're going to rebuild our families. We're going to bring in a strong biblical economic system within our own families. We're going to teach our children these values while the rest of the world effectively is going to hell in a handbasket. I turned in my resignation letter to my principal at the beginning of October. My principal had asked me to write a letter explaining to the parents. Dear parent, effective Tuesday, November 2nd, I will be resigning my position as your child's fifth grade teacher. Over the past several months, I've realized that our public school system is not merely neutral with regards to religion, but it actually approaches education in a way that is completely contrary to biblical principles. As a Christian woman, it has been difficult for me to instruct my class without acknowledging the name of Christ throughout the curriculum. There are Christian teachers and administrators in public schools who believe they are working for Christ and being salt and light to students. But these educators are silenced by law from proclaiming the Lordship of Christ and they know that speaking out would cost them their job. At the same time, teachers who are homosexuals, radical environmentalists, and atheists are given free reign to pervert the mind of your child and are given special protection by the same public school system that is all too eager to attack Christian educators. My principal asked me to see the letter so she could read it. I told her that it was the only letter I was comfortable sending home, and if she did not want me to send it, um, she would need to write another one to the parent. And they were concerned because I had two weeks left before my last day with the students. They were concerned that my Christian beliefs would, would influence both the parents and the students. So they asked me to resign that day. Remember my first interview with Sarah? How long would your career last if you were to start um, teaching scripture from the front of the classroom? <laughs> I'd probably be out of here that day. I agreed to go ahead and resign that day as long as the new reason for my resignation could state why. The school system is asking me to move up my resignation date because they are concerned my Christian beliefs will influence the students and parents. And that was signed by me and um, the human resources representative. I did return to the elementary school that day 
and the principal supervised me as he cleaned out my classroom. They had the students go on a, a back playground and they had me go around um, a different way than I normally do so that the students could not see me while they were on the playground. When all I had done was, was tell my students that I was leaving because I was a Christian. If you desire that your children grow in the fear, admonition, and love of our Lord, I strongly encourage you to consider making the personal sacrifices necessary to remove your children from the public school system. I pray that you will take up this challenge by educating your children in a way that is honoring to our Lord. Sincerely, Sarah Lavardier. Mike, here we are in front of the indoctrination yes. bus. <laughs> what a you, beauty. You've been, well, <laughs> you've been a big part of the indoctrination project and you're a whistleblower because you were in the public schools, mm -hmm. you're a Christian man, but you took a stand. Tell me what you had to do. Well, uh, I went into public schools as a Christian when I, when I came to the Lord, basically looking at Matthew 5 and wanting to be salt and light in a system that I knew was, was darkness. 15 years in a system, the things that I saw, and as the Lord moved me along and was sanctifying me and convicting me, I realized that I was thinking that I was in neutral territory, but even though there are a lot of things you can do, but can you go to the extreme of being salty and being light? After his resignation, God led Mike to move his family to the Raleigh, North Carolina area, where he is writing a book about his experiences. Tell me how you're, what you're thinking, seeing all the school buses arrive. I had to step back and look at it and say, okay, I got into this thinking I would be the salt and light that, that it's talked about in Matthew 5, but when I really look at that verse, I realize that there is no Christian that can be in the public school system that can truly be salty and truly be, you know, a light on a candlestick. Because if you do that, if you are worth your salt and your light, you will not be in the system for long. Proverbs 37 says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And he really worked on my heart to show me what, what my desires should be and to be more in line with him. Um, I started to step up as the leader of my family more. I started to step up as a, as a father, as a teacher of my family, as Deuteronomy 6 and as Ephesians 6 says. And through doing that, I started to be convicted by, by God's word, especially as we were reading through Proverbs before dinner. We didn't go too far. We came to Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I, I was, was stop dead in my tracks on that verse because here I am home educating my children because I know beyond anything else that I want them to have a foundation in Christ and I want them to have a biblical worldview. And why if I believe that, and I believe the Bible is true, all of its words are true, why is that not good enough for the 300 students in the school that I'm a principal of? Our tour was over and my questions were answered. The main question for me and for you is what do we want for our kids? With all that we had learned, I knew that I wanted the best option possible. And it was clear that to protect them and to raise them in the faith, I could never put them in a government school. Our children are with us for such a short time. They are the only treasures we should ever hope to take to heaven with us. 
let us never lose sight of this and never surrender them to the big yellow bus. Destroying our bus might seem like a strange thing to do, but I wanted to do this to symbolize an important biblical principle. In Acts 19, the church got together and destroyed all their harmful literature. Jesus also warned that it is better to be cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck than to cause a little one to stumble, sin or fall away. This is what the bus does. It drives our children away from Christ. Anything that takes our children away from an enduring faith in Jesus and his eternal rewards is worthy of destruction.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.